at Carter's in New York. Here it was. The flawless 69.42 carat diamond. It was originally bought by Carter's for $1,050,000. People were, were filing into the, into the jewelry store to visit to see this thing that was in this glass box. And as they walked in, the security guard, Joe Whitehead, was standing there and he was listening to the comments as people were going by. And this is what he heard. This short, bald guy, nothing against bald people, of course, but this short, bald guy peered condescendingly at the big diamond and the small glass case. And he, he said, I see a flaw there, but I'm not going to say anything to anybody. It isn't that beautiful, concluded this well-dressed lady, but I wouldn't mind having it. It's too large, said one woman with rhinestone-studded glasses. Another one, I think it's vulgar, but I just had to see it. And as Joe was, was standing that day, he made the comment later on. He said, I've heard more sour grapes in the two days than I have in my whole life. Think about that as we go through this, this message today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your word, Lord, as we open it up and as we study another unsung hero of the Bible. God, I pray that you will teach our hearts. Help us to be able to apply it to our own lives and see you faithful. We want to commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Pastor Tim shared a story about a young Jewish slave who um, told Naaman to go down and see Elijah to get healed for his leprosy. And she was our unsung hero last week, and we're going to study six more over the next six weeks after today. And today I wanted to spend some time talking about Miriam. Now, how many of you know who Miriam is? Raise your hand. Okay. How many have never heard of her before? Raise your hand. Don't feel shy. How many? There's a number of you. How many just don't care? You're not going to raise your hand anyways. Okay, I understand. All right. But I'd like to spend some time talking about her. She is my unsung hero today. And we're going to find out why. And she played a significant role in, in the life of the Jewish nation, the Israeli nation, uh, in the early days. She is, she is the brother, or the sister of, of Moses. And we're going to learn about her today as we go through that. We're going to move through the book. Have your Bibles. Open them. We're going to look in Exodus and, and Numbers to get the whole picture of her life. The good things and the bad things. So have your Bibles ready. We're going to flip around. So the first thing we want to look at is, is Miriam the Protector. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 1 through 8. Now a man in the house of Levi, married to a Levite woman, she, gave, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, just to give you a little background, the, the Pharaoh at that time was saying that the, these Jews, the, this Jewish nation was getting too big, and so they ordered the midwives to kill if they saw that it was a baby boy being born they would have to kill the baby. And, and they, the army went around house to house. So this baby was born, and she kept him hid for three months because she saw that he was a fine child. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a pastoralist basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girls to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went 
and got the baby's mother. Now, this is the first time in, in the Bible that we see an older sister mentioned that Moses had. It's not, it doesn't use her name, but a lot of scholars and philosophers believe that it was, um, that it was Miriam. So just for our story's flow, we're going to just assume that that is, but we don't know 100%. Now, one great philosopher once said, this philosopher's name was Jim Carrey, um, he said, behind every great man is a great woman rolling her eyes. But the real, real saying is, uh, behind every great man, there's a great woman. And no one knows how much older she was than Moses, but she played such a mighty important role in the history of Israel, in the saving of his life. It was, it was very important. To have a sense and the guts to do what she did, to go up to Pharaoh's daughter and ask if she needed somebody to nurse her, that was, I'm convinced, of the Lord. That the Lord gave her the strength and the ability to do that. By God's grace, she was where she needed to be to impact the Jewish nation at that time. She took responsibility and stayed around the baby and, and didn't go off like most teens, would, most young people would get bored and say, oh, this is boring, I'm going to go play for a while, he's okay and I'll come back later. No, she didn't, she just stayed there watching guard over him. She was exactly where she needed to be at the exact time God wanted her to be there. You got to see this through history because nothing, it takes God by surprise. She showed so much maturity. Now, there's a girl named Monet Davis. You might have heard of her. She was a teenage pitching phenom that took the Little League by storm and has inspired a Disney movie. She went to bat this Monday for a college star who got kicked off his team for a nasty tweet about her. You may have heard this. The 13-year-old was named the Associate Pre Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year for 2014. She reportedly wrote to Bloomsburg University and asked the schools to consider its decision to eject Joey Castleberry, who sent out a tweet calling her a nasty name on that Friday and ridiculed the idea that they had made a movie about a girl who exploded onto the national stage with her performance during the Little League World Series. She played out of Philadelphia. But Monet showed that she had a heart of gold just as her throwing arm. When she wrote to the president, David Schultz, asking that Castleberry be given a second strike, she said, you know what, this guy said this, I'm going to be mature in this, and I'm going to ask them to have, allow him to have a second strike. That's maturity for a young girl like that, to be able to write and, and forgive this guy that said something very critical about her. There's nothing wrong with teaching our children to be responsible and mature. There's nothing wrong with having our children uh, learn how to clean off the table after dinner or, or to load things into the dishwasher to help with the yard work outside or to do things around the house, make their own bed. It only does nothing but cause them to learn how to be mature and, and have good work ethics in the future. And this is what Miriam had done. Spiritually, we could sit down with our children and help them memorize scripture. That's why I appreciate the Iwana program so much. Because as a parent, as our kids are coming home with the, the, the lessons and things, we could sit down with them as a family and memorize these, these scripture verses and work on the projects and things that are just instilling a spiritual maturity into our children. And they can work on them together. Taking our children with us when we go and serve is a huge example. It's one of the biggest examples that we could set for them. Let them see us loving and serving other people. As we get down and get dirty with, with people, have them with us so we can, and we can work together as a family. Do random acts of kindness. Go on mission trips as often as possible with them. In Colossians 1, verse 28, write this down. I don't have it up on the board. Colossians 1, 28, it says, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That includes those around us, our children, and, and people we minister alongside with, and those we, have, we are co-workers with, that we can help other, usher people into a, a more of a maturity. And this is Miriam. This is Miriam because her parents had instilled into her responsibility and learned what it was to, to be responsible. And because what she did, she had a huge role in, in saving Moses' life. And Miriam is no different than, than kids today. But she had been taught to be responsible and she le learned to live it out. That's Miriam as a, as a, as a young girl. Well, you flip, next time we hear from her is in Exodus chapter 15. So open to Exodus 15. We're going to see Miriam the prophetess. Miriam the prophetess. As an adult, she was given this title, and she led the women in public celebration and worship of God after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. So we look in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 15. It says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with the tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So here was Miriam leading these women in worship and praise. Now, in the Bible, there were only 10 women in the entire Bible that were given this, this position as prophetess, and Miriam was one of them. In Micah, this is up on the screen, in Micah chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So God gave these three, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, to the children of Israel to make sure they got out of Egypt in a, in a timely matter and manner and things. So Miriam, as an adult here, was fulfilling a role that God had given her. She was doing, she, led the, she basically led the women's ministry, so to speak, and was doing what God created her to do. There were about two to three million Israelites at that time, and, and Miriam took a segment of them and led them in praise to our God. Sometimes, sometimes men and women, when, when they're in ministry, they don't, they don't feel like their contribution to ministry is very, it's pretty insignificant, they feel. That if they were to drop off, life would go on as normal. I don't know if you've ever felt like that in your role as a Sunday school teacher, a nursery worker, or an usher, or whatever. But this happens. But nothing would, would is nothing is farther from the truth. Just ask Linda, a friend, what happens when someone calls and says, you know what, I, I can't be here, you know, something came up. She has to scramble because your role has played such an important part in, in the ministry. Like, I have this puzzle piece on today. And uh, we are all part of a puzzle. As each one functions, each one is in their place, it fits together and things run smoother and things can, can move forward because we're doing what God created us to do. And that's what Miriam was doing. She was fulfilling her role, her job. And it may seem small and insignificant, but it's vital to the ministry I don't know if you know this, there's a group of ladies every Monday morning, they head down, downstairs here, and they prepare a meal. Most of the people don't know who they are. It seems like it's an insignificant thing, but if they all of a sudden said, uh, we, none of us can be here, we're in trouble. We don't have a meal for Monday night. These women sacrifice their, their whole Monday. They get down here at about 11, they're here till about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they are unsung heroes. There's a group of men and women who go into the prison every week and, and teach Bible studies. You know who they are? They're behind the scenes. We don't know about them. We have people who um, take care of our flowers 
and, and our, our decorations in the church and, and around the outside of the church, do you know who they are? They are our unsung heroes. Because, because of what they do, the church goes on. They're fulfilling a role that God has created them to do. It's amazing how it all works. They are my heroes of the faith. Now I can go on and on and sing the praises of those who, who are in a ministry, but you don't really know who they are. We got people that we can call on and say, hey, listen, you know, we got this, this cabinet that's got to be uh, put in. Can you come and help? Yeah, they'll be here. And they get it done. But they don't, they don't they're not behind the pulpit here speaking and, and teaching like that, but they are doing what God has gifted them to do, using it mightily to further the gospel. That's who Miriam was in her adulthood. But as with anyone, this is where the story takes a little twist. We're going to look at Miriam, the problem starter. So I want us to think about this. We're going to be looking at um, Numbers, chapter 12. So if you want to turn there while I'm introducing this. As with anyone else, as with anyone, if you are serving and you don't feel like you're loved or supported or someone else is getting more of the accolades than you, what happens to your heart? Your heart begins to twist a little bit and Satan has a foothold in there saying, you should be getting that praise. You, this, you're just as much involved with as they are. How come they're getting all the glory? And the Satan begins to work on us and, and corrupt our thinking into saying that, what's going on? How come I can't do this? I've seen it happen over and over again. Years ago, there was a farmer. He was stood on the side of the road one day and observed this uh, large wagon filled with household goods moving toward him. Dust flew as the wagon pulled to a stop and the driver shouted, hey, we're moving from Brownsville to Jonestown. How much further is it? The farmer replied, oh, about 30 miles. And what kind of people shall we expect to find there? Asked the traveler. Well, what kind of people did you leave behind in Brownsville? He asked. Oh, they were so negative so cheerless, so deceptive, and so ungrateful. Just an ungodless, just a godless bunch, all of them. That's the main reason we're moving. What kind of people are we going to find in Jonestown? The farmer wisely said, the very same kind, sorry to say. And he was right. He knew the traveler would find in the next town the same kind of people that he thought he was leaving previously in Brownsville. And this is so important here. Far more often than we care to admit, outlook determines outcome. You understand that? That our outlook of what we're perceiving makes the outcome like that. So how this farmer saw these, these people as negative and cheerless and deceptive and all that stuff, it was his perception of them. Okay? The way we look at a matter and the attitude we choose has direct bearing on how we experience reality. Two people can see the very same incident, the very same situation, and come up with uh, two different things based upon their attitude that they chose to observe that with. Patterns of thinking that they have, that they have formed over a long period of time. And one thing I want us to remember right now is that this time, how old is Moses? He's over 80 years old. He's probably close to 90 years old. He was 80 years old when God met him at the burning bush and told him he's going to Egypt to uh, bring his people out. So if Miriam is that older sister in here, she's got to be over 90. And Aaron is probably even older than that. And here they are starting to cop an attitude. And so as we look at Numbers, chapter 12, this is a, a little lengthy paragraph or two that we're going to read here, but it's important to get the gist of what's really going on in their hearts. Okay, Miriam, starting in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Moses. 
Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man of Moses was very meek, more than all people on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meetings. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought back in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not send, set out on, march, on a march until Miriam was brought back in again. That's the gist of the story. Now let's tear this thing apart a little bit. Miriam, the problem starter here. Miriam and Aaron began to criticize Moses about the woman that he had married. Now, one thing I want us to understand as we go into this, there's a difference between complaining and criticizing. Complaining is about situations. You don't like your job. You don't like the car you're driving. You don't like the style of house you live in. You don't like this food. You don't... That's complaining. You're, you're complaining about a situation where criticizing always has to do with someone or a group of people. And this is what Miriam was doing. But a critical attitude is aimed at a person. That would include gossip and slander. It says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. In another translation it, that um, spoke against says to criticize. And if you're writing this down, this is the definition of criticism. Is dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. You hear that? Is dwelling upon, criticism is dwelling upon the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. So let's, let's tear that apart just a little bit. So Moses had this Mass of people that he was leading. He needed people around him that would support him and be leaders with him. And, and be alongside him to support him and care for him. And, and, and take people and lead them and, and be a godly leader. But it's the people closest to us that were closest to him that got off track very quickly. And went from supporting him. To him being the target of their criticism. It didn't take long. So perceived faults. Let's look at perceived faults. Perceived faults are my perception of what is wrong with you, which may not be entirely accurate. Okay? How I see you acting may not be, I'm perceiving it through my, my eyes and my thinking, it might not be accurately true of what I see. And the other thing is, is that the problem may be with me. It might be my problem why I'm angry at you. So this is what, where we find Miriam, she began to criticize him. And um, so she had these perceived faults. What was the fault that she found? You married a Cushite woman. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. 
But the thing that's most important about this definition is the words dwelling upon. I think that's where the biggest problem is, is that um, we're dwelling upon the perceived faults of another is actually the key issue. We're thinking about that often, and it's working at us. It's starting to make us angry. So some people are very positive and upbeat and encouraging, while others are often critical of people and their actions. So as, as we think about this, I want us to put ourselves, God, okay, am I a critical person? Are you talking to me about this? Because I, I get around and, and I see a lot of people who are very critical. Are you a person that goes through life saying, saying to yourself, that's not right, or who thought that looks good, um, and so on. We, 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 do you sit in church and say, can't we get better musicians up there than those? Or We always find fault with them. I don't like that style of music. We, we want to, he should cut his hair. PT should cut his beard off. It makes him look so old. He did. But uh, I heard all kinds of comments, critical comments uh, about that. And um, this is where we find Miriam and Aaron. The verb in the Hebrew to speak, they spoke against. This is important. This is how we understand where the problem originated from. Because the word spoke against is in the feminine. So that means that it came from Miriam. She was the instigator of this whole thing. And Aaron got dragged alongside. She began to complain to Aaron. She began to criticized Moses in front of Aaron and, and got him worked up in the same thing. And that's what happens so often. Uh, a person who gets critical attitude drags other people into it, and one person's bitterness can defile a lot of people. And the thing we have to remember is that Miriam was a godly woman. She was a righteous woman. The, the Bible can talk to her as she was a prophetess. She was used of God to, to have an impact in the, women's, in the women's ministry there. and But she allowed a guilt, you know, she became guilty of a critical attitude. And we are all just as vulnerable as she was. Most scholars believe that Moses' first wife, Zipporah, had died, and he took another wife, from Cush, that's an area in Ethiopia, and she wasn't from a Jewish descent, and when things became a problem, she became the scapegoat for their criticism. They started blaming Moses for taking this woman who wasn't Jewish. Miriam may not have liked his choice for a wife, but it wasn't her choice. It was Moses' choice, but she used that to cover up the real issues that were going on in her heart. What were those real issues that were going on in her heart? We see in verse 2. It says, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? He says, she says. So Moses' choice of a wife was only the surface issue. It really wasn't that important we're going to see that a little bit while in a little while but the real issue was that Moses was receiving prominence more than her that her real beef was how come Moses gets all the attention we're leaders too she starts whining and carrying on and why why does he get all the perks in the notary Moses this Moses I'm sick of hearing Moses name this is what was going on in her heart and so she started spreading these rumors and talking about Moses behind his back. Saying, what's my role in this? Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? See, this is where it gets down to where her heart is really at. Jealousy. And so this jealousy birthed a critical spirit and a critical attitude that she was, she was giving now, plopped in the middle of this story is verse 3. This is interesting. Let's read verse 3 together. It says, Now the man of Moses was very meek, more than all people 
who were on the face of the earth. Now, this is an amazing verse, if indeed Moses did write the first five books in the Bible, which I believe he did. Jesus believes that he did, because he wrote in Mark 12, 26, have you not read the book of Moses? And you may, you may be thinking to yourself, how can the most humble man on the earth write something like that? It's a fair question. Because we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, and, and, and is, is good for us. It was God-breathed. And so why would Moses write something like that about himself? Here I am. I'm the most humble guy in all the world. I'm proud of it. Well, how that happened. Moses, when he sat down, when he wrote the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he didn't just sit down one day and says, I'm going to start writing these out. No, he didn't. As he's going along, he's got scrolls, he's got notepads, he's got things that he put all these things down on as, as he's going along. Because one of the things that happened that's in the book is the story concerning his death. Did he write that? Ahead of time? I'm going to die and this is where it's going to be happening. No, he didn't. As, the, as they, after his death, they started collecting all these things that he had written on. Probably a chest full of papers and, and notebooks and they didn't have Mac Pro and things like that back then. So they were all just papers that they pulled together. And as they were putting these down there, somebody wrote in there the story about his death. And somebody wrote in there also this verse just to help us to understand how important it was for how hurtful this was to Moses as he is hearing these rumors that are being said. As he's listening to this critical spirit, that must have hurt. So they wrote those verse, that verse in there just to help us to clarify our thinking and to help us to see um, how, what he was going through. So that, that phrase about humility, somebody added later. So put yourself in Moses' sandals for a minute. And here's your older sister and brother who you trust, you love. All of a sudden, they're saying all these negative things about you. How would you feel? I know if, if my, my brothers and my older brothers and sisters did that to me, it would hurt. Because you're my blood. You're my, you're my brothers and sisters. I, why are you saying these things about me? You know me. And that's what he was going through. So what happened to Moses and Aaron? And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out here you three, to the tent of meetings. And the three of them went out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So here they are. They got called into the principal's office. And have you ever been called into the principal's office? It's scary. Usually I got in trouble because I did something stupid. But you go and have to sit in the principal's office. That's a scary situation. Here's Miriam. And Aaron, God calls, you guys come up here. I need to talk to you. So what does he say? Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. In other words, God's saying, do you have any idea who you're talking about? Do you have any, I don't have any other servant like Moses in the world. I speak to him face to face. And, he, and we, we converse. What right do you have to criticize him? That's what he says in the next verse. He says, why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. I, I'm... I'm sure that Miriam and Aaron were shaking in their boots. God, what's going to happen? I blew it. You know, what's, what's going to happen to me next? Well, you notice God's deep feelings. 
Miriam and, Mo and Aaron must have been scared to death. They didn't have time to think or even respond. They, they could have said, well, we weren't being that critical. We were just pointing out a few flaws. I mean, wait a minute, nobody's perfect. But God, he didn't wait for them to respond or explanation. They didn't have to wait long for the consequences either. Because when the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. Just like that. That's, Pastor Tim has, talking, has talked about leprosy in the past. How deadly it is. There was no cure at that time. And here she was, signing her death, the death wish had been signed. Aaron then pleaded for his sister to Moses. And Moses, being the humble man that he was, goes to the Lord. And he, the Lord, had mercy on her. She was sent away for a week. After that week, time was up. She came back whole again. What can we learn? What do we need to learn from this story in history? The children of Israel didn't, didn't learn it. They didn't learn it because not too long after this, they began to criticize Moses again. They were going to stone him. All these things. But what can we learn from this? So I have six principles I want us to, want us to glean from this that are evident in this story. First one is criticism is sin. Having a critical attitude is sin. And Aaron and said to Moses, Oh Lord, do not punish us. We have done foolishly and have sinned. From God's perspective, when we dwell on the perceived faults of others with no view to their good, this is sin. And so there's three results of sin that we see that happen in this story. First of all, criticism ruins our fellowship with God. Letter I there, the first I. And it doesn't destroy our relationship with him because we are saved for eternity, but our fellowship with him. It ruins our fellowship with God. Criticism changes, this is important, it changes our capacity. It changes our capacity to sense his love and presence. We see that in the case of Miriam and Aaron. If, if you have a critical attitude, it's hindering your relationship with God, your fellowship with God. Think about that. Are there, is there times in your life that you feel like you're in a wilderness, it's dry, it's dead, cheerless, and joyless? Maybe it's because you've allowed a critical spirit, a critical attitude to creep into your life, and you're, you're saying things about other people that are not to build them up. It's not to their good. It's perceived faults that you're dwelling on that is not for that person's good. So we may have these critical attitude toward other person or groups of people in our life. If my fellowship is broken with God, what do I need to do? Follow the principle, 1 John 1, 9, that says if we confess our sins, he may forgive us. What does it say? He will forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises that. The second point under that is our critical attitude hurts us. It hurts us. It, is, it has a costly toll on us spiritually. And it has been said that if we choose to sin, this is important, if we choose to sin, we're choosing to suffer. Some people say, well... It's not my fault that I'm, I'm the way I am. No, no. If you are sinning, if you're living in sin, you're, gonna choo you're choosing to experience suffering, dissatisfied life, unhappiness, and things that, that you're choosing to do. Dr. David Fink is an author of the book called Release from Nervous Tension. This is, a, this is really key to understanding about how this hurts us. He worked with thousands of people who were mentally and emotionally disturbed or troubled. Most of them asked Dr. Fink for some kind of a short-term quick fix. They would ask him often, what is the secret to emotional health? So many of these people all had the same question. In his search for answers, he studied two groups of people. 
in, the, in this two groups of people, the first group was made up of thousands of people who were suffering in some way with tension, emotional turmoil, significant stress. And the second group contained only, and he had thousands of them also, were those who were free from such internal struggles. So he had these two groups, and he began to study them, asking questions and gleaning information. Gradually, one fact began, began to stand out. One fact. It was almost across the board with these people. Those who suffered from extreme tension had a single trait in common. They, had, they were habitual fault finders, constant critics of people and things around them. Meanwhile, the men and women who were free from the tension were less critical of others. No doubt about it. The habit of criticizing is very personal, personally destructive pattern of thinking. You understand that? Because sometimes I, I don't think we get it, that, that I'm struggling, I'm suffering. Well, maybe it's because I am a critical person. I don't love people. I'm, I'm just more critical about them, the way they dress, the way they walk, the way they talk, how they, how they act, all these things. Number three, a critical attitude destroys our fellowship with others. Now, when people talk to me about not being able to make friends, or that every time they begin to make friends, they, you finish the sentence. Every time they, I try to make friends, this and this, this happens. It doesn't take long into the conversation that I understand exactly why nobody wants to be their friend. Because they have nothing nice to say. I have, I have a relative of mine. He's my relative, so I have to love him. But I don't like hanging out with him. Because... Nothing makes him happy. He's critical of every single thing that happens. We go play miniature golf, and he has to wait 10 minutes for this group ahead of him. He cuts through to the ninth hole and then starts going around that way. Or he's at a restaurant, and he doesn't like the server that he had, so he walks out and not pays the bill. He's very, just very critical. I'm embarrassed to be around him. And I would rather be at home watching my grass turn green than to hang out with them. You know what I mean? It ruins, a critical attitude ruins our fellowship with other people. It's just simple as that. B, part B, that criticism is petty. And we see this in the story with Miriam and Aaron, that they didn't like his, Moses' choice of wives. But the real issue uh, was not the wife of Moses. That was the cover-up for, for the jealousy in their heart. You've heard the story, Aesop's fable, about the man, the grandfather, the grandson, and the donkey. How that the old man was walking while the grandson rode the donkey. But some people said, would you look at that old man suffering on his feet with that strong young boy who is totally capable of walking sits on the donkey. So the old man, hearing that, switched places and he began to ride the donkey while the boy walked. Now he heard people saying, would you look at that, a grown man taking advantage of that little boy. Can you believe it? And so the man and the boy both rode the donkey. Then they heard the people saying, would you look at that, those heavy brutes making that donkey suffer. So they both got off and walked until they heard some people say, how pitiful, a perfectly good donkey not being used. Well, the final scene of the story shows the boy and the old man staggering along the road carrying the donkey. So the point of this is, is, is this. If a person's heart is to criticize, if their heart is to find fault, then absolutely nothing can satisfy them. Behind the petty issues is really a truly a critical heart. So we have this story of Aesop's fable here. But that's a lot like our hearts. There's really nothing that can make me happy. You buy a new phone. Next month they come out with a new model. So now I'm not happy with that one. I want a new one. Or your friend has a better model or a nicer car. Now you get criticized of him because of his new car. And, and you become critical. So a lot of things are, are petty that we begin to become critical. And it just exposes our true heart. Number C. Or letter C, criticism is self-exalting. 
God puts people in the place where he wants them. And that's the case of Miriam and Aaron. And, and then they begin to criticize. When they begin to criticize leadership, they're actually criticizing God. And they're saying, I could do that better. Who else did that in history? Lucifer. He was up there with God. God created him, gave him a position, the highest angel in heaven, but he wasn't happy. He said, I want to be God. He wanted to take over for God. That's a sinful heart of criticism, critical attitude. D, criticism is painful. I'm sure you've experienced um, from those that you should be the closest with when they criticize you. You know, I've heard, I've heard parents, can't you do anything right? And I wish you were like, more like your brother. That hurts. I, I never want to hear parents say that to their children. Never. That's the most demeaning thing you could ever say. Because God created us each as individuals. God created us different. And so we need to be able to work with that. It's painful, criticism is. Letter E, criticism is often inadvertent. Now, to illustrate this, uh, we were visiting some friends at a Christian camp in northern Wisconsin. And while we were at this camp, we wanted to take advantage of some of the amenities that the camp offered. And the kids said, let's go shoot the bows and arrows. And so we went down to the pit. It's in the side of this mountain. There's a big net that was almost as high as this, this ceiling here. And, and so we went down there, and, and everybody did it. Tracy was about six or seven years old, my youngest daughter. And she gets the bow, and she has the arrow on there. And as she's pulling it back, her arm goes up like this. And before I could say anything, she let it go. And it went sailing up over the net, up to where the path was for the lunch cafeteria. And the kids were just getting out of lunch. And I heard this kid scream. I thought, oh, I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. And then I heard him start laughing because he was just joking. But that illustrates how, how things that we say, once they've left, you can't get them back. They do their damage. Fortunately, it didn't hit the kid in the head. But that's how our critical attitudes, our critical comments can, can hurt people. Because once you let them go, you can't stop it. It's done. It's already been said. And sometimes when we say things, we, we have to practice good carpentry skills when we're speaking. You know what that is? Measure twice, cut once. Okay? So I try to practice, I try, is to think twice and speak once. And that has helped me a lot of times to, to not say something stupid that I would regret later because I'm learning the hard way of in saying inadvertently things. I, there was one time I was preaching on a Sunday and I said something and, and there were like three or four families that left the church in tears. I spent all afternoon calling and apologizing to these people because of something I let myself, it wasn't in my notes, that's the thing, I gotta stay on my notes. And uh, so if I do that, then I'm okay. But I allowed myself to say something without thinking and, and I offended a number of people. I was critical about something. So it was inadvertent, but it was still something that, that um, so Aaron said in these verses, he said, we have acted foolishly. We didn't stop and think about the ramifications of what, we're, what was being said. And lastly, criticism plugs the flow of God's blessings. Plugs the flow of God's blessings. So the final principle is that criticism um, can be found in this story. Oswald Chambers made uh, a great observation. He says, whenever you are in a critical temper, it's impossible to enter in co into communion with God. That's a scary thought because that's where Miriam and Aaron were. They were consumed with their attitudes and they couldn't hear from God until he had to pull him aside and speak to them. Then they finally woke up and understood. And this goes in, in, in our churches too. We just had a, 
uh, new members class. And next week when we do the interviews, we always ask them, when the church that you came from, if they came from another church, the church that you came from, are there unresolved issues that you haven't dealt with yet? If they say yes, then we ask them, please go and make that right before we can allow you into membership. Because the attitude that you brought, if it's not dealt with, it'll raise its ugly head again here. And so we want to we break that cycle. And so we, we try and encourage that in people's lives. Because we don't want that flow of God's blessings to stop. We want to be able to experience that. We want to experience that together as a church. So in closing, I have three questions that I want to ask you. Three questions. Number one, am I a critical person? All right, that might be too, a little too general, okay? Am I a negative and harsh in my opinions of others? Am I quick to find fault? Am I an analytical person or a perfectionist who gets carried away into criticism? Does that, am I talking to you? Number two, am I reaping the consequences in my relationship with God? Is my life like a wilderness? Is my heart like a wasteland? Am I ready to agree with the critical attitude is one reason I'm in the desert? So we have to ask ourselves that question, am I reaping the consequences in my own relationship with God for having a critical attitude? And thirdly, am I willing to repent? Am I willing to turn from my selfish attitude, my critical attitude that fed into this pattern? Am I willing to turn from my critical heart and repent to God? So as you, as you think about those three questions, and as Miriam and Aaron were restored back into fellowship and continued to serve the Lord together with Moses until they died, this is why Miriam is my unsung hero today. Because I see how she is human. She is so much like us that we sometimes have attitudes that creep up. But she dealt with it. She received consequences for it. But she was restored back to fellowship. She was restored to a right relationship with God again and was able to serve God for the rest of her life. That's my hero. Let's pray.